this country, we adopted a definition that caused the number of AIDS cases to double overnight. And part of that reason was for the first time we began counting people as AIDS victims who were not ill and who did not have any symptoms. They had a low T-cell count. And that's only one low T-cell count. T-cells are something that can fluctuate 100% in a given day. So based on a low T-cell count, that year the number of AIDS cases doubled overnight and with that definition there have been 182,000 Americans who are not ill diagnosed with AIDS who would not have AIDS if they moved to Canada because in Canada they don't recognize that T-cell definition as a criteria for having an AIDS diagnosis. All of the diseases in the category called AIDS occur to people who are HIV negative None of them are exclusive to people who test HIV positive, and all of them have causes and treatments that are known, well known, they're completely unrelated to HIV. So any of the, these diseases, when they happen to somebody who tests HIV negative, are called by their old name. But when they occur in someone who tests HIV positive, then they're called AIDS. All kinds of diseases started coming into the AIDS family faster than anyone should have been comfortable with, really. To go from two or three to go to, to 30 in a few years was like somebody should have said, hey, there's something wrong here, and it's got to be financial. Hello, and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. That was Kerry Mullis. Recently, many videos of him have appeared online. He was the inventor of a technology called PCR. Many are now familiar with the acronym because it is a technology purportedly being used to detect SARS-CoV-2. However, there are several problems with the application of this technology, one of the most pronounced being that if set to different thresholds, the test will give different results that are less accurate. Boldly titled videos like, You're Being Lied To! appeared on YouTube about Carrie Mullis, but nothing was really explained. What is the history of this technology? Why isn't it effective in testing applications? I was left with more questions than answers, so I decided to look into PCR, its history, the connection with AIDS research, and Carrie Mullis. I sat down several times to write this episode because the more research I did, the bigger the story became. What started out as an inquiry into the PCR test morphed into a much more substantial story. There is a template for the current state of medical chicanery and corruption, AIDS and the narrative surrounding it. The same key players are involved, Anthony Fauci is one of them. This might not be news to some of you who have decided to do any research into this topic. The lesson of the story is simple. Money and vested interests dominate medical and scientific research with big payouts for pharmaceutical companies. With early data from these outbreaks, those in power could have chosen to protect groups of people who are high at risk by carefully disseminating information. This is not what happened. Instead, the government international health organizations, and officials spread fear throughout the entire population. This harms the people who could be most vulnerable to these illnesses and terrifies those that aren't. How could this be? Shouldn't health officials be there to protect us and give us accurate information? The story of AIDS, MOLAS, PCR, and the subsequent result is parallel to the story of SARS-CoV-2. AIDS was the original blueprint for the medical tyranny we are experiencing now. Let's start at the beginning, the source of PCR, Carrie Mullis. Born on December 28, 1944 in North Carolina, 
Mollus was a curious kid into exploring and observing the natural world. He enjoyed building and designing rockets, which at the time was encouraged as part of the Cold War effort. He joked in one of his lectures that if you were to try to do this today, you might get on some kind of terrorist watch list. Back then in South Carolina, young boys seeking chemicals were not immediately suspect. We could even buy dynamite fuse from the hardware with no questions asked. This was good, because we were spared from early extinction on one occasion, when a rocket exploded on the launch pad, by the very reliable, slowly burning dynamite fuses we could employ, coupled with our ability to run like the wind once a fuse had been lit. Our fuses were in fact much improved over those which Alfred Nobel must have used when he was frightening his own mother. In one of our last experiments, before we became so interested in the maturing young women around us that we would not think deeply about rocket fuels for another ten years, we blasted a frog a mile into the air and got him back alive. In another, we inadvertently frightened an airline pilot who was preparing to land at DC-3 at Columbia Airport. Our mistake. In 1966, Mollis started graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley. Instead of taking the normal courses required for biochemistry, he took music, anthropology, math, and physics. He figured that his colleagues in the biochem department would teach him everything he needed to know about it. Mollis likely considered himself a Renaissance man, but perhaps it was his unique education, including humanities courses, that allowed him to become such a vocal critic of AIDS and AIDS research. Mollis would become very concerned with the ethical implications surrounding the accepted narrative around HIV-AIDS. He recalls of his time at Berkeley. In Berkeley, it was a time of social upheaval, and Joe Neelands was the perfect mentor to see his people walk through it with grace. We laughed a lot over tea at four every afternoon around a teakwood table that Joe had brought from home and oiled once a month. Our lab had an ambience that was special. I decided to become a neurochemist. Joe was the master of microbial ion transport molecules. It wasn't done like that in most labs, where the head of the lab would prefer you to help advance his career by elaborating on some of his work. Not so with Neelands. As long as I wrote a thesis and got a degree, he didn't care what else I did. And I stayed in his lab happily, following my own curiosity, even if it carried me into music courses, for as long as Joe thought we could get away with it. The department was paying me a monthly stipend from the NIH, and eventually, Joe knew, I would have to leave. When it came time to produce a thesis, without having taken any required courses in molecular biology, Mollis decided he would write a paper entitled The Cosmological Significance of Time Reversal. This was published in Nature and earned him a Ph.D. in biochemistry in 1972. After this, Mollis worked a few odd jobs before returning to science in California. Before landing a job at CETUS, Mollis worked at the University of California at San Francisco, killing rats for their brains. In 1979, he took a job at CETUS Labs in Emeryville, California. At first, Mollis wasn't very interested in DNA. But then there was a seminar describing the synthesis and cloning of genes. That impressed me. For the first time, I realized that significant pieces of DNA could be synthesized chemically, and that they were likely to be very exciting. I started studying DNA synthesis in the library, and I started looking for a job making DNA molecules. Cetus hired me in the fall of 1979. I was working long hours and enjoyed it immensely. DNA synthesis was much more fun than killing rats, and the San Francisco Bay Area was a good place to be doing it. There were a number of biotechnology companies and several academic groups working on improving the synthesis methods for DNA. Within two years, there was a machine in my lab from BioSearch of San Rafael, California, turning out 
oglionucleotides much faster than the molecular biologists Acetus could use them. I started playing with the oglionucleotides to find out what they could do. It was at Cetus that he would think of how to reproduce small samples of DNA in order to make them large enough to study, otherwise known as PCR. This would allow scientists to make millions of copies of scarce samples of DNA. PCR came to him while driving on a moonlit night in the hills of Northwest California. In 1993, Mollis accepted a Nobel Prize for his idea and reflected on how he invented PCR. One Friday night I was driving, as was my custom, from Berkeley up to Mendocino, where I had a cabin far away from everything off in the woods. My girlfriend, Jennifer Barnett, was asleep. I was thinking, since oglionucleotides were not that hard to make anymore, wouldn't it be simple enough to put two of them into the reaction instead of only one, such that one of them would bind to the upper strand and the other to the lower strand, with their three prime ends adjacent to the opposing bases of the base pair in question? If one were made longer than the other, uh, then their single base extension products could be separated on a gel from each other, and one could act as a control for the other. I was going to have to separate them in a gel anyway from the large excess of radioactive nucleoside triphosphate. What I would hope to see is that one of them would pick up one radioactive nucleotide and the other would pick up its complement. Other combinations would indicate that something had gone wrong. It was not a perfect control, but it would not require a lot of effort. It was about to lead me to PCR. I liked the idea of a control that was nearly free in terms of cost and effort, and also it would help me use up the oglionucleotides that my lab could now make faster than they could be used. As I drove out the mountains that night, the stalks of the California buckeyes, heavily in blossom, leaned over into the road. The air was moist and cool and filled with their heady aroma. What if the oglionucleotides in the original extension reaction had been extended so far they could now hybridize two unextended oglionucleotides of the opposite polarity in the second round? The sequence, which they had been extended into, would permit that. What would happen? Eureka! The result could be exactly the same, only the signal strength would be doubled. Eureka again! I could do it intentionally, adding my own deoxynucleoside triphosphates, which were quite soluble in water and legal in California. And again, Eureka! I could do it over and over again. Every time I did it, I would double the signal. I stopped the car at mile marker 467 on Highway 128. In the glove compartment, I found some paper and a pen. Jotting down some calculations while stopped on the side of the road, Mullis confirmed that his idea was plausible. He did some more driving. Jennifer wanted to get moving. I drove on down the road. In about a mile, it occurred to me that the oglionucleotides could be placed at some arbitrary distance from each other, not just flanking a base pair, and that I could make an arbitrarily large number of copies of any sequence I chose, and what's more, most of the copies after a few cycles would be the same size. That size would be up to me. They would look like a restriction fragments on a gel. I stopped the car again. Dear Thor, I exclaimed. I had solved the most annoying problems in DNA chemistry in a single lightning bolt, abundance and distinction. I could make as much of a DNA sequence as I wanted, and I could make it on a fragment of a specific size that I could distinguish easily. Somehow, I thought, it had to be an illusion. Otherwise, it would change DNA chemistry forever. Otherwise, it would make me famous. It was too easy. Someone else would have done it, and I would surely have heard of it. We would be doing it all the time. What was I failing to see? Arriving at his cabin, he couldn't sleep. All he could think about was his idea and whether or not someone else had already thought of it. During the weekend, he made a lot of notes about how it would work, and by Monday, he was in the library. Monday morning, I was in the library. The moment of truth. By afternoon, it was clear. For whatever reasons, 
there was nothing in the abstracted literature about succeeding or failing to amplify DNA. By the end of the week, I had talked to enough molecular biologists to know that I wasn't missing anything really obvious. No one could recall such a process ever being tried. And yet, none of his colleagues were excited about his idea. However shocking to me, not one of my friends or colleagues would get excited over the potential for such a process. True, I was always having wild ideas, and this one maybe looked no different than last week's, but it was different. There was not a single unknown in the scheme. Every step involved had been done already. Everyone agreed that you could extend a primer in a DNA template. Everyone knew that you could melt double-stranded DNA. Everyone agreed that what you could do once, you could do again. And the result on paper was so obviously fantastic that even I had little irrational lapses of faith that it would really work in a tube. And most everyone who could take a moment to talk about it with me felt compelled to come up with some reason why it wouldn't work. It was not easy in that post-cloning, pre-PCR year to accept the fact that you could have all the DNA you wanted, and that it would be easy. He was not deterred and recruited some lab technicians as well as his friend and fellow scientist Ron Cook, who had founded BioSearch and produced the first successful commercial DNA synthesis machine. Ron said Mollus should patent right away, but because Mollus had come up with the idea of working at Cetus, he thought it best to continue working with them to develop what we know as PCR today. In fact, without other scientists at Cetus, Mollus's idea would have been far more intensive. They helped create a way to apply his idea to automation, otherwise it would have been a tedious and lengthy process. This is all to illustrate that while one man might come up with something brilliant, it likely takes a team working together to make an idea applicable to reality. That is what makes the story about AIDS and its parallel to SARS-CoV-2 so compelling. Teams of scientists beholden to interests outside science aren't likely to produce quality work. That and good science takes a lot of time, patience, and experimentation. Science should be about truth. But more and more, it is about a truth that has been pre-approved for consumption by tech giants, government, and international health organizations. Carrie Mullis was clearly a brilliant man, but was also controversial. He was known to some as sexist, and does seem to lament about his girlfriend in his Nobel Prize lecture a lot. But it was when he started questioning the connection between HIV and AIDS that he really caught some heat. In the height of what has been described as the AIDS crisis, he started asking questions that still don't seem to have answers. Things don't happen that fast in science. You don't suddenly notice that one new organism is causing every problem. I mean, it was a bizarre thing that happened. It really was. It didn't really have any precedence in terms of, of medicine before that, unless perhaps you could think of the possession by the devil stuff, right? You see, once you're possessed by the devil, anything that happens to you or anything you do is, is got to do with that, right? So it makes it easier for you to get tuberculosis, and it makes it easier for you to get uterine cancer. It makes it easier for you to get candida albicans. And so all those things can now be called AIDS. Now, why would anybody do that? And why would any reasonable doctor start lumping together various symptoms into one pile and think all this is caused by HIV. We have a test, but it's not a test for AIDS, and it's called an HIV test, but it's not a test for HIV, and we have a series of problems that 
we are calling AIDS, but that doesn't elevate AIDS into a disease. It's, I don't know if you read magazines lately. There's a lot of ads for pharmaceutical drugs lately. These pharmaceutical companies are, are marketing more and more direct to consumers and encouraging you to ask your doctor for the remedy of the day. And I noticed that there's a lot of these syndromes popping up, like a, uh, social anxiety disorder or SAD. I mean, you can make a syndrome out of anything you want, basically, and then find medicines to sell to make people better from it. And AIDS is not that, you know, ludicrously simple, but it is, in a sense, just as constructed. It's a, it's a construct. It's, it's a category of other problems, some of which were occurring in greater numbers in a very small subset of people here in the U.S. and other parts of the world that became, due to the social political climate with regard to sex, death, homosexuality, and drug use, it became elevated into this medical phenomenon that has become untouchable and, and sacred almost. He and other people questioning the AIDS narrative were punished. Some had their entire careers obliterated because they questioned the mainstream narrative around HIV and AIDS, like premier cancer researcher Peter Duisberg. He argued that there was no definitive connection between HIV and AIDS. Instead, he said, the population who are getting AIDS were putting their immune systems in jeopardy by engaging in risky sex and drugs like poppers. Obviously, this was a terribly unpopular opinion at the time. Journalists who wrote extensive pieces like Celia Farber were discredited as AIDS deniers, even though nowhere in her work does she deny the existence of AIDS. Farber, Duisberg, and Mollis all wanted to see definitive proof that HIV causes AIDS. And then there's the illnesses that fall under autoimmune deficiency syndrome. There were, at first, just a few, it then started ballooning to include other illnesses. If the patient tested HIV positive and died of tuberculosis, then it was because the patient had HIV. Does this sound familiar? One of the most scandalous parts of the story of SARS-CoV-2 was marking everyone dying as a death from SARS-CoV-2 because they had a positive test or displayed symptoms. There's also the issue of different testing criteria being applied in different countries. Farber observed, a majority of HIV-positive tests, when retested, come back indeterminate or negative. In many cases, different results emerge from the same blood tested in different labs. There are currently at least 11 different criteria for how many and what proteins at which band density signal positive. The most stringent criteria, four bands, are upheld in Australia and France. The least stringent, two bands, in Africa where an HIV test is not even required as part of an AIDS diagnosis. The U.S. standard is three reactive bands. It has been pointed out that a person could revert to being HIV negative simply by buying a plane ticket from Uganda to Australia. In the mid to late 1980s, a positive HIV test seemed like a death sentence, but it didn't have to be. I'm very much opposed to the concept of mandatory testing of any population because the tests are scientifically shown to be unreliable and inaccurate. You have no reason to fear this bill. And my hope is that eventually this will become a federal law so that every woman in this country 
could be tested. When I confronted my doctor about that, she said, we're way past Western blot now. We have the viral load test. That when you get the package insert for the viral load test, it says... If you test positive, you are considered confirmed infected with HIV. But at the bottom of the page, in fine print, it states a person should have additional testing. It does not allow you to tell a single person on this planet that they are HIV positive. And it's a scandal that this test continues to be used. So again, I'm asking, where's the test? Where's the test that can confirm a diagnosis of HIV infection? And I can't find one. In fact, the authorities could have warned people who were in high-risk groups, homosexual men in the case of AIDS and HIV. I believe they could have been warned with early data about certain lifestyle choices that could increase the risk of getting sick with AIDS. According to Farber, there is ample statistical and epidemiological evidence linking the rise of mass drug use in the late 60s and 70s with sudden appearance of AIDS. The overwhelming majority of AIDS patients with Kaposi's sarcoma, for example, have been heavy users of nitrate inhalers, otherwise known as poppers. The case of super AIDS that was recently reported in New York turned out, upon closer examination, to be an individual with an extraordinarily heavy methamphetamine habit. Instead, the gay community likely got astroturfed into demanding a dangerous drug known as AZT. Just like SARS-CoV-2, we knew early on who was most vulnerable and what they could do to possibly prevent getting infected. Instead, policies in both cases resulted in countless deaths. One of the key players in both of these sagas is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Towards the beginning of the outbreak of AIDS, Fauci was involved. I even spoke to a gay man about this who still regards Fauci as a hero to gay men. According to Farber's reporting, Fauci is also responsible for risky drug trials and the prescription of a drug known as AZT. Farber writes... Drug companies around the world were sifting through hundreds of compounds in the race to find a cure, or at least a treatment, for AIDS. Burroughs Welcome, a subsidiary of Welcome, a British drug company, emerged as the winner. By chance, they sent the failed cancer drug, then known as Compound S, to the National Cancer Institute, along with many others to see if it could slay the AIDS dragon, HIV. In the test tube, at least, it did. At the meeting, there was a lot of uncertainty and discomfort with AZT. The doctors who had been consulted knew that the study was flawed and that the long-range effects were completely unknown. But the public was almost literally banging at the door. Understandably, there was an immense pressure on the FDA to approve AZT, considering the climate of fear and anger all around. What is perhaps the most upsetting part of this story, to me, is the blatant use of a tragedy experienced by the gay community. They were convinced by astroturfing organizations that they needed AZT. They were in fact demanding it in the streets. If it means anything, Welcome was founded by Henry Welcome. According to Wikipedia, he founded the pharmaceutical company Burroughs Welcome & Company with his colleague Silas Burroughs in 1880. In addition, he left a large amount of capital for charitable work in his will, which was used to form the Wellcome Trust, one of the world's largest medical charities. He was also a collector of medical artifacts, which are now displayed at the Wellcome Collection. 
What they forget to mention is that many of these artifacts are Masonic texts. Henry Welcome was also a Freemason. You can find their library full of Masonic titles, including my favorites, The Invisible College, The Royal Society, Freemasonry, and the Birth of Modern Science, The Arcane Schools, a review of their origin and antiquity, with a general history of Freemasonry and its relation to theosophic, scientific, and philosophic mysteries, and get ready for it, the grand mystery of Freemasons discovered, wherein are the several questions put to them at their meetings and installations, as also their oath, health, signs, and points to know each other by, as they were found in the custody of a Freemason who died suddenly and now published for the information of the public. This published in 1724, and that was a mouthful. You get the point. In my estimation, it is this very same fraternity that is still heavily involved in perpetrating crimes against humanity and are some of the arbiters of the narrative surrounding AIDS and SARS-CoV-2. Perhaps Welcome Trust needs its very own episode. They profited the most off of AIDS by producing, selling, and marketing AZT. Their logo at the time was also the picture of a unicorn. Very strange when we see unicorns, isn't it? Now, they operate the Welcome Trust, but their pharmaceutical production was purchased by GlaxoSmithKline. They profited off a tragedy and killed people in the process. Before the release of AZT in the U.S., a panel was held to determine its efficacy. According to Farber, On a cold January day in 1987, inside one of the brightly lit meeting rooms of the monstrous FDA building, a panel of 11 top AIDS doctors pondered a very difficult decision. They had been asked by the FDA to consider giving lightning-quick approval to a highly toxic drug about which there was very little information, clinically called Ziodovine, but nicknamed AZT after its components. The drug was said to have shown a dramatic effect on the survival of AIDS patients. The study that had brought the panel together had set the medical community abuzz. It was the first flicker of hope. People were dying much faster on the placebo than the drug. However, there was some dissent by the panel chairman, Dr. Brooke. The committee was tending to agree with me, he says, that we should wait a little bit, be more cautious. But once the FDA realized we were intending to reject it, they applied political pressure. At about 4 p.m., the head of the FDA's Center for Drugs and Biologics asked permission to speak, which is extremely unusual. Usually they leave us alone, but he said to us, Look, if you approve the drug, we can assure you that we will work together with Burroughs Welcome and make sure the drug is given to the right people. It was like saying, please do it. Everyone speaking out about this at the time was smeared. Farber, Mullis, and Duesberg are only to name a few who were, according to the parlance of our times, canceled, like anyone offering a different narrative on SARS-CoV-2 today. This is not to mention the lives lost to AZT, which was eventually pulled from the market altogether. Welcome made a huge profit while Fauci spread lies and fear. According to Farber in 1989, Newspapers across America banner headline that AZT had been proven to be effective in HIV antibody positive asymptomatic and early ARC patients, even though one of the panel's main concerns 
was that the drug should only be used in a last case scenario for critically ill AIDS patients due to the drug's extreme toxicity. Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the NIH, was now pushing to expand prescription. The government has announced that 1.4 million HIV antibody positive Americans could benefit from taking AZT, says Fauci, even though they show no symptoms of disease. New studies have proven that AZT is effective in stopping the progression of AIDS in asymptomatic and early ARC cases, he said. He proudly announced that a trial had been going on for two years and had clearly shown that early intervention will keep AIDS at bay. Anyone who has positive antibodies to HIV and less than 500 T4 cells should start taking AZT at once, he said. This is approximately 650,000 people. 1.4 million Americans were assumed HIV antibody positive, and eventually all of them may need to take AZT so they don't get sick, Fauci contended. In a terrible and ironic twist, Fauci is still held up as a hero by many in the gay community. According to Farber, the majority of those in the AIDS-afflicted and medical communities held the drug up as the first breakthrough on AIDS. For better or worse, AZT had been approved faster than any drug in FDA history, and activists considered it a victory. Because of the most severe toxic effect of AZT, cell depletion of the bone marrow, patients would need frequent blood transfusions. As it happened, AZT was rapidly prescribed as soon as it was released, way beyond its purported parameters. The worst-case scenario had come true. Doctors interviewed by the New York Times later in 1987 revealed that they were already giving ACT to healthy people who had tested positive for the antibodies to HIV. The scientific facts about AZT and AIDS are indeed astonishing. Most ironically, the drug has been found to accelerate the very process it was said to prevent, the loss of T4 cells. Dr. Harvey Belay, a scientific editor of the Journal of Biotechnology, is stunned by the low quality of science surrounding AIDS research. Undeniably, he says, AZT kills T4 cells, white blood cells vital to the immune system. No one can argue with that. AZT is a chain-terminating nucleotide, which means that it stops DNA replication. It seats out any cell that is engaged in bone marrow. That's why the most common and severe side effect of the drug is bone marrow toxicity. That is why they, patients, need blood transfusions. There is no good evidence that HIV actively replicates in a person with AIDS, and if there isn't much HIV replication to stop, it's most likely killing healthy cells. Whether or not you die or live with AIDS is a function of how well your doctor treats you, not of AZT, says Dr. Joseph Sonnebend, one of New York City's first and most reputable AIDS doctors, whose patients include many long-term survivors, although he has never prescribed AZT. Sonneben was one of the first to make the simple observation that AIDS patients should be treated for their diseases and not just for an HIV infection. I'm ashamed of my colleagues, Sonneben laments. I'm embarrassed. This is such shoddy science, it's hard to believe nobody is protesting. Damned cowards. The name of the game is to protect your grant. Don't open your mouth. It's all about money. It's grounds for just following the party line and not being critical, 
when there are obviously financial and political forces driving this. AIDS infection, PCP, and Carposi sarcoma. The overwhelming majority of AIDS patients die of PCP, for which there has been effective treatment for decades. All of these deaths in the AZT study were treatable, Sonnenben says. They weren't deaths from AIDS, they were deaths from treatable conditions. They didn't do any autopsies for that study. What kind of faith can we have in these people? Apparently none at all. Earlier I said that a positive HIV test sounded like a death sentence. However, there has never been a definitive connection made between HIV and AIDS. And this brings me to the tests themselves. They were the result of the technology Mullis thought of on that moonlit night, PCR. However, he warned that it should not be used as a diagnostic tool. In 1992, in his spin interview with Farber, he said, PCR made it easier to see that certain people are infected with HIV, and some of those people come down with the symptoms of AIDS. But that doesn't even begin to answer the question, does HIV cause it? PCR, simply put, is a thermocycling method used to make up billions of copies of a DNA sample, making it large enough to study. PCR, simply put, is a thermal cycling method used to make billions of copies of a specific DNA sample, making it large enough to study. PCR is an indispensable technique with a broad variety of applications, including biomedical research and criminal forensics. The PCR test is still used today for HIV and now SARS-CoV-2. There is a problem with this. In June of this year, Off Guardian published a piece by Torsten Engelbrecht and Constantine Demeter entitled, COVID-19 PCR tests are scientifically meaningless. In it, they argue that the PCR test is junk science. The reason for this is that PCR is extremely sensitive, which means it can detect the smallest pieces of DNA or RNA, but it cannot determine where these particles came from. That has to be determined beforehand. Hence, we have asked the science teams of the relevant papers which are referred to in the context of SARS-CoV-2 for proof whether the electron microscopic shots depicted in their in vitro experiments showed purified viruses. But not a single team could answer the question with yes, and nobody said purification was not a necessary step. We got answers like, no, we did not obtain an electron micrograph showing the degree of purification. According to Dr. Charles Clashier, a seasoned virologist, modern virus detection methods like PCR tell little or nothing about how a virus multiplies, which animals carry it, or how it makes people sick. The journalists kept asking those that were publishing papers about SARS-CoV-2 questions, but they needed to get a lawyer involved. They asked if the so-called Drosten test is quantitative. The answer was no. Then there is the issue with the threshold of the test. Another essential problem is that many PCR tests have a cycle quantification, CQ, value of over 35, and some, including the Drosten PCR test, even have a CQ of 45. The CQ value specifies how many cycles of DNA replication are required to detect a real signal from biological samples. CQ values higher than 40 are suspect because of the implied low efficiency and generally should not be reported, says the MIQE guidelines. 
MIQE stands for Minimum Information for Publication of Quantitative Real-Time PCR Experiments, a set of guidelines to describe the minimum information necessary for evaluating publications on real-time PCR, which is also called quantitative PCR, or QPCR. The inventor himself, Kerry Mullis, agreed when he stated, if you have to go more than 40 cycles to amplify a single copy gene, there's something seriously wrong with your PCR. The MIQE guidelines have been developed under the aegis of Stephen A. Boustin, professor of molecular medicine, a world-renowned expert on quantitative PCR and author of the book A to Z of Quantitative PCR, which has been called the Bible of QPCR. In a recent podcast interview, Boustin points out that the use of such arbitrary CQ cutoffs is not ideal because they may either be too low, which eliminate valid results, or too high, increasing the false positives. And according to him, a CQ in the 20s and 30s should be aimed at, and there is concern regarding the reliability of the results of anything over 35. If the CQ value gets too high, it becomes difficult to distinguish the real signal from background, for example, due to reactions of primers and fluorescent probes. And hence, there is a higher probability of false positives. Engelbrecht and Demeter argue, the numbers generated by these RT-PCR tests do not in the least justify frightening people who have been tested positive and imposing lockdown measures that plunge countless people into poverty and despair and might even drive them to suicide. And a positive result may have serious consequences for the patients as well, because then all non-viral factors are excluded from the diagnosis and the patients are treated with highly toxic drugs and invasive intubations. Especially for the elderly people and patients with pre-existing conditions, such a treatment can be fatal, as we have outlined in the article, Fatal Therapy. This parallels the AIDS crisis. When Farber says healthy HIV-positive people, she means people like pregnant women who were experimented on in Uganda. She also means Joyce Ann Hafford, a pregnant woman who was tested positive for HIV. At the University of Tennessee Medical Group, she took part in a trial that was sponsored by the Division of AIDS, the chief branch of HIV-AIDS research within the National Institutes of Health. This ultimately killed her and left her child orphaned. She did not know that being pregnant could actually give a result of false positive if she had been given that information, would she have taken part in a risky drug trial that killed her? This is what I mean by information and its dissemination, which has now fallen into the hands of technocracy. The tech giants decide which information is deemed as truth by its Ministry of Information. These are controlled by the state and tech moguls like Jeff Bezos. There's nothing new under the sun. Just like other powerful moguls before and learned men before that, there are gatekeepers to information, information that if not disseminated properly, ends up being deadly. AIDS was a template for SARS-CoV-2. It allowed global health organizations to disseminate misinformation to the public and give them carte blanche to go in and do what they know best, experiment on people that they say need their help, but are really just those less fortunate among us. They're taking the show to the third world, and they're... Um 
not only giving AZT to um, what will probably be millions of women in the third world, whether they're HIV positive or not, but they're also um, ins insisting that they stop breastfeeding and start formula feeding. Certainly that explains what happened in Uganda during AIDS trials in the 90s and 2000s. According to Farber, Johns Hopkins AIDS researcher Brooks Jackson had already generated major funding from the NIH to stage a large trial for Neviraprene in Kampala, Uganda, where the benevolent dictator Yari Museveni had opened his country to the lucrative promise of AIDS drug research, as well as other kinds of pharmaceutically funded medical research. It was called HiveNet 006, and it enrolled 21 pregnant women for initial study. Of 22 infants born, four died. There were 12 serious adverse events reported. The study also showed that there was no lowering of viral load in the mothers who took the study drug. The maker of the drug conducted an independent review of the trials and found out that it was a mess. According to Boehringer's pre-inspection report, serious non-compliance with FDA regulations was found in the specific requirements of reporting serious adverse events. Drugs were given to the wrong babies, documents were altered, and there was infrequent follow-up, even though one-third of the mothers were marked abnormal in their charge at discharge. The infants that did not receive follow-up were, in many cases, small and underweight for their age. It was thought to be likely that some, perhaps many of these infants, had serious health problems. The Westat auditors looked at a sample of 43 such infants, and 43 had adverse events at 12 months. However, during the HiveNet scandal, major health organizations covered it up. Boehringer's report and Westat's, which had been performed in conjunction with DAIDS, but the ways in which the various players were tethered together made it impossible for DAA to condemn the study without condemning itself. According to DAIDS's public version of events, which was dutifully echoed in the AIDS press, the trouble with HiveNet was that it was unfairly assailed by pedantic saboteurs who could not grasp the necessary difference between U.S. safety standards and the more lenient standards that a country like Uganda deserved. Two weeks after the 57-page Westat report was delivered, the deputy director of NIAID, Dr. John Lamontag, had set the tone by stating publicly, there is no question about the validity of the HiveNet results. The problems are in the rather arcane requirements and record-keeping. DAIDS was so dismissive of the Westat report that Westat's lawyers eventually put officials on notice that they were impunging Westat's reputation. These organizations are responsible for disseminating misinformation about both AIDS and SARS-CoV-2 to the detriment of the populations that could be affected the most. In the case of AIDS, I believe gay men should have been given better information about AZT and the harmful effects of poppers known to weaken the immune system. People who are just asking questions should not have been lambasted by the mainstream, but we should all know by now that's not how this system operates. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, we knew rather early on from the stats released by Johns Hopkins that this affects the elderly and those with certain co 
morbidities the most. Instead, the Democratic governors of both Pennsylvania and New York issued policies that ended up killing people in nursing homes and elder care facilities. Anthony Fauci has blood on his hands and he knows it. AIDS was a template and many people still don't know the truth after almost 40 years. This is a tragedy. There is also still no vaccine for AIDS. And instead of politely telling gay men that maybe engaging in risky behavior is bad for the body, they offer PrEP. According to their website, it must be taken daily to be effective with continuous visits to the doctor. However, PrEP doesn't even prevent the spread of other sexually transmitted diseases. Sounds eerily familiar to other drugs sold to the gay community such as hormone replacements, which are very harmful and and include frequent trips to the doctor. The pharmaceutical cartels just want lifelong patients and endless epidemics. With SARS-CoV-2, we will have to wait and see. I doubt there will ever be a good vaccine. Those take time, and if ushered in too quickly, could kill people. Just like HIV, the virus has never been purely isolated. Therefore, none of these tests meet Koch's postulates. They want us all to live in fear. I believe that if you take care of your body and in stop ingesting mainstream media, you have a fighting chance. Please consider donating if you made it this far and like my work. The link is below. Have an awesome time doing whatever you're doing.